in a world that says character is not important, comes the word which says you must take a stand. You and I, as believers in the Jehovah God, the God who created all, have been challenged to be salt, to be light, to take a stand in a dark and dying world. But those around us say, compromise. Give in. Do not pay attention to anything that says you shall take a stand. But the Word of God challenges us to take that stand. He who stands for nothing will fall for anything. He who stands for nothing will fall for anything. Let's pray together. Father God, in the morning of this day, would You come to us and wrap Your loving arms around us as the warmth of the sunshine warms our bodies. And Father, would You give us the courage to take a stand in a world that will persecute, in a world that will ridicule, a world that will mock, and in some areas, Father, a world that will kill because we know You and we love You. And so, Father, this morning, would You clear from our minds any distractions? Would You allow Your Holy Spirit to search deep within our hearts And we give you the freedom to put fingers on areas of our lives. Give us the courage and the obedience to deal with those. And Father, as we leave this building, may our convictions be renewed to draw some lines, to take some stands, no matter what what it cost. And now, Father, I ask that You would be clear and accurate as we get into Your Word. That, Father, that sharper than any two-edged sword, it would penetrate and it would expose and it would equip us to be the saints and the ministers and the salt and the light and the men and women who are mighty in spirit and godly in character that You've called us to be. We'll give You the praise, the honor, and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Her parents wouldn't take her to church. And so every Sunday morning, the little five-year-old girl would wake up bright and early. And she would take her bath and she would put on her pretty pink dress and put the ribbons in her hair And she would grab the big white family Bible that if it hit somebody in the head, it would kill them. But she would tuck it under that little arm and she would skip the four blocks to church. And it just so happened that as she would go this same route every Sunday morning, she would pass by the house 
of one of the college professors that lived in her neighborhood. And he would be up bright and early on that Sunday morning cooking his coffee, smoking his pipe, reading his newspaper. And he would see this little girl prancing down the sidewalk and he would see that book. And something inside infuriated him. And he couldn't stand it. Something just made him mad. And after weeks and weeks and weeks of observing this little girl go past, he decided, I've got to do something about this. And so that Sunday morning, he peered out the side window and saw her come around the corner. And he went flying out the front door to intercept her where his sidewalk met the sidewalk she was on under the guise of picking up his Sunday paper. And as he reached down to pick up the paper, the little girl approached, and he stood up and he says, Little girl, where are you going? I'm going to church, sir. He says, Well, what's that book you're carrying? Well, that's the Bible, sir. He said, Well, why do you carry that book? She said, Because I believe it, sir. He said, do you mean to tell me you believe everything in that book? She says, yes, sir, I believe everything from Genesis to Revolutions. And the maps, too. He said, now, now wait a minute. You mean to tell me you believe everything in that book is true? And she says, yes, sir. He said, now, what about all of those stories back in the first part of the book? I mean, the, the, about the old guy that built the boat... You know, and it took him like a hundred years to build this thing, and he put all these smelly animals on it, and it rained for 40 days and 40 nights and all that kind of stuff. She says, that was Noah, and I believe it. And he said, now, what about the guy that got thrown overboard from another boat, and he got swallowed up by a whale? She says, sir, I don't mean to correct you, but it doesn't say it was a whale, it was just a big fish. He said, well, okay, whatever you say. But anyway, he got thrown overboard, he got swallowed by the fish, and he stayed in there for three days and three nights. I mean, that's impossible. She said, that was Jonah, and I believe it. He said, now, wait a minute. I teach chemistry at the local college, and there is no way that somebody can live inside the stomach of a big fish for three days and three nights. The gastric juices would eat his skin up and eat everything else up, and he'd come out bleached, and I mean... I mean, there's just no way. How do you know that's true? That's a good question, isn't it? How do we know that what's in this book is true? I mean, we've heard about it. We've been preached to. We've read it. We've studied it. We've been taught it. We sing songs. We tell stories. We can quote verses. How do we know it's true? It's a good question. Isn't it? Well, the little girl and her childlike face says, Well, you know, sir, I don't really know. But when I get to heaven, I'll ask old Jonah. And he'll tell me what went on. And the professor looked down at her and said, Well, what if Jonah's not in heaven? And she looked back up at him and batted those blue eyes and all of her little childlike innocence. And she said, well, then you can ask him.
Now, I don't know about you. But I've been taught, as I'm sure you have, because you're a part of Master's College. And I know that Dr. MacArthur teaches this book crystal clear, absolutely, the authoritative Word of God from Genesis to Maps. But how do we know it's true? And how do we know that it really makes a difference? Well, you see, for some of us, we have it up in our head. And we can quote the stories and sing the songs. And we can put on the religious act in front of our group. But it's left in our head and not in our heart. And before Christianity can ever become what Jesus Christ intended for it to be, it's got to move from here to here and make a difference here as we walk. He who stands for nothing will fall for anything. My third year of college, I received Christ as my personal Savior. I trusted His death on the cross to be the payment for the penalty of my sin. I had joined the church when I was ten and got baptized. But all I got back then was wet. My junior year of college, I began a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And the man who discipled me for four years used to ask me a question that today still haunts me. His name was Barry St. Clair. And some of you may have heard him speak or read his books. But Barry used to pull me aside when we'd meet at 6 o'clock in the morning on Tuesday mornings. And he would say, if there were no way you could fail, if there were no limits, if there was no money too great or too small, if there was no way that you could ever fail, what would you trust God to do in you and through you for the rest of your life? And as I began to think and dream and think, wow, what could God do? And I'd come up with some of these ideas and there was a little voice deep inside that would say, why would God ever use you to accomplish anything? You ever had that voice say that to you? God can't use you to accomplish anything. I mean, come on. He only uses Billy Graham and John MacArthur and Charles Stanley. I mean, he's not going to use you. And Barry would come back with that question, if there were no way to fail, what would you like to see God use you to accomplish? And I would begin to dream again. And the same roadblocks would keep coming back to me. For you see, I had a wrong concept of the kind of person that God used See, I had this view that God only used good-looking people. And see, if God had made me handsome, you know, I could walk across the the campus at school and all the girls would follow me because I was so good-looking. And all the guys would follow them because they were after the girls. And then at some point in time in my ministry on the campus, I could stop and say, the reason I'm so good-looking is that God made me this way. And I could pull a cigarette lighter out of my pocket and say, this is fire. And if you don't repent, you're going to burn in eternity. 
And I thought, you know, looks is where it's at. And then I realized that there's a guy named Dave Reaver, whom some of you have heard. And by his own admission, this man is ugly. I mean, he had a sulfur hand grenade blow up in his face. And he's had operation after operation after operation, but God uses him to win thousands of people to Christ each year. And I realize that on God's application for usefulness, there's not a little box in the corner that says, please include photograph. And as I look through this book, there are no pictures. God is not concerned about our appearance physically to determine our usefulness. I said, okay, God, if it's, if it's not based on looks, I mean, I'm just 22, God, okay? Now, God, if you'll just let me get a little bit older, a little bit more experience, and wait till I get out of college, and wait till I get a job, and wait till I get this, and wait till I wait. And I waited and waited and waited and waited and waited. And God kept coming back. He said, okay, okay. I said, now, God, you know, if I were only younger, and we'd go back this way a little bit more, And I realized that God took a man that was too old to have kids and started his whole nation. And he took a young boy who was too young to be king and raised him up to be the premier king that his people ever had. And on that application for greatness, under the line that that says name, there's not a line that says Please include age. Because God does not determine usefulness by our age. Alright, so He's not interested in our looks. He's not interested in our age. Uh, well, God, you know, if, if I were only a big athlete, you know, if I were just the star, you know, and I could run down the field and catch the touchdown in the Super Bowl and I could stop and when they said, well, what are you going to do next? Going to Disney World, okay? You know, like everybody else says, say, the reason that I caught that touchdown was because God let me. And I thought, you know, God only uses professional athletes and influential people and makes them his spokespeople. But you know, I realize that there's a principle in Scripture that says this God's not looking for influential people to save and make faithful, He's looking for faithful people that he can raise to levels of influence. He's looking for faithful young men and young women that he can raise to levels of influence. How's your faithfulness? Are you seeking influence or are you seeking faithfulness? And there were several other things that I kept thinking that I had a wrong concept about the kind of person that God used. And over the years, I've come to see that God's not interested in most of what I think He is. But Scripture is very clear on the kind of man, the kind of woman, the kind of student that God will use to impact the world. And what I'd like for us to do in the time that we have remaining this morning is to examine Five teenagers in Scripture that God used to impact the world.
you've got your Bibles, please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16 and 17. And as you turn to that passage, it's a passage that we're all familiar with. Let me set a little background. Saul is the king. Saul has disobeyed God. And so God comes to the prophet Samuel. He says, Samuel, I'm going to remove the anointing from Saul. He has disobeyed me. And I want you to go to the house of Jesse. And from the sons of the house of Jesse, I will pick the new king. And you're going to be the person that has the privilege of doing that. And so Samuel obeys God. And he goes to Jesse's house and he knocks on the door. And Jesse comes to the door and Jesse says, uh, uh, may I help you? He says, Jesse, I'm Samuel. I'm from God. He says, I know. I've seen you on CNN. You know, come on in. You know? And so he comes in and, and they bring in some tea and some, you know, whatever they had back in those days. And they sit around and, and, and Samuel looks at Jesse and he says, Jesse, today's a good day for you because God has told me that from your sons, he's going to appoint the next king over his people. And so Jesse says, well, what do I need to do? He says, well, you call in all of your sons. And so you know the story. Jesse calls in almost all of his sons, and he lines them up from the eldest all the way down to the least. Well, almost all of them. And, and so they line up, and Samuel looks at these guys. And he looks at the first one, and his eyes lock in on Eliab. And he says, man, this is a piece of cake. God, I mean, why would you have me come all the way out here in the middle of nowhere? Because this is so obvious. Look at this guy. He's tall. He's handsome. Look at his complexion. He is king material, God. I mean, come on, God. Couldn't you give me something a little bit more difficult? And then in 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning in verse 6, then it came about when they entered that he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God looks at the heart. What's in your heart? What's in your heart? See, the first characteristic of the kind of person that God uses to impact society is those with a pure heart. Those with a pure heart. And you say, well, whoa, that leaves me out. I don't have a perfect heart. Neither did David. We all know the story of David. He has an affair with Bathsheba. He has her husband, Uriah, sent to the front lines and killed. He tries to cover it all up. I mean, if there's somebody in Scripture that's not perfect, it's David. But he's the only one in Scripture that it says this was a man after God's own heart. Where's your heart? Purity of heart means your intent, your desire, what motivates you. And no, you may not be perfect in your performance. But God is looking for purity of motive. What's in your heart? Is it pure? Is it pure? You want to know what's in your heart? Let me ask you three questions. Just kind of put them in right here. What's your greatest fear? What do you fear in life more than anything else? IRS, snakes, spiders, 
Bill and Hillary. What do you love in life more than anything else? What's your greatest love? What's your greatest fear? What's your greatest love? Third question, what's your greatest desire? What do you want in life more than anything else? And see, the answer to all three of those should center around the same thing if your heart is pure. Your greatest love, that's it. Your greatest desire is to please that whom you love the most. I want you to listen with spiritual ears. Your greatest fear is to lose that intimate fellowship with Jesus Christ. Now, as believers, we cannot lose our salvation. Ephesians 1.13 says that we're sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit. When we are saved, we are saved. No man can pluck us from his hand. But our greatest fear should be to lose that intimacy of relationship that we have. Our greatest love is Him. And is our greatest desire is to please Him. What's in your heart? What's in your heart? There are three steps to getting a pure heart. The first is confession. Good old 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. Confession is the start. The second step is cleansing. If we lived in Oklahoma in the Dust Bowl, and we lived in a little house with no air conditioning, and to keep cool we had to leave the windows open, and the wind began to blow and the dust came in, we could sweep ourselves silly all day long. How do we get rid of the dirt? Close the window. So we confess and then we cleanse. Paul would say getting to the root or to the stronghold. What it is that's causing the source. But then there's a third step. There's a third step. Circumcision. You say, what does that have to do with a pure heart? Very simply. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6 says, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart in order that you may love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What does it mean to circumcise your heart? It means to remove from your heart those things which may not in themselves be good or bad, but they keep you from having a pure heart toward God. You say, well, what does that mean? Let me put it down in practical terms, okay? How many of you read the newspaper every day? All right, how many of you read it every week? Just raise your hand. Okay. How many of you read your Bible every week? Not for class, but just personal growth, personal study. Okay. Now, let me ask you this. Even at a Christian college... Chances are, a great majority of people in here, if they were honest, would say, I spend more time reading newspapers, magazines, other stuff than I do reading the Word. How many of you believe every word you read in print media is true? 
How many of you believe every word in the Word of God is true? How can we justify spending more time reading stuff we don't believe is truth than that which we do believe is truth? There's nothing wrong with reading the newspaper or magazines. But if they keep us from having a pure heart, God says, it's time to circumcise some things. So the first characteristic of the kind of person that God uses is a person, a man or a woman, a student, who has a pure heart. Not a perfect heart, but a pure heart. And the story of David continues. And see, David's only about 14 or 15 at this time. And so Samuel calls in David. He says, this is the one. And he says, you're going to be the king. And the story goes on. One day Jesse calls David in out of the, the fields with the flocks. He says, um, Dave, um, I want you to go up to where the battle's going on. And I want you to take some supplies to your brothers. And I want you to check on their well-being. And so David says, sure. You know, and he gets somebody to cover the sheep for him. And so he packs up all the stuff and he takes off. Now, he comes to the battle and there's a very unique situation going on. God's people are camped on one hill, and they've got their tents, and the Philistines are on the other hill, and in between there's a valley. And every morning, the children of God wake up, and they put their armor on, and their suits, and their weapons, and they get ready, and they come strolling out to the mountain, and they stare over the valley at the Philistines. And the Philistines get up every morning, and they put on their armor and their stuff, and they come up every morning, and they stare back. And right at the right time, out walks Goliath. Fifi, Fofum, I'm Goliath, here I come. And all of God's people get scared and they run and they hide in their tent and watch soap operas the rest of the day. I mean, they are scared to death of this guy. Because look at him, I mean, look how big the guy is. And scripture tells us in 1 Samuel chapter 17, it tells us the story of what goes on and how Goliath comes out. He taunts the armies of the living God. And he mocks God. And he says, you can't beat me. And David comes on the scene and he sees all the commotion. And he says, guys, what's going on here? And they explain to him about what's happening. He says, look, you missed the picture. The battle's not between him and us. It's between him and God. They say, what? Say, yeah, he's taunting our God. He's not taunting us. Folks, you've missed the focus. The focus, the perspective is the battle is not between him and us. It's between him and our God. And so they go back into their tents and they're sitting there. What was David meaning about this and this? I mean, come on. And David, meantime, says, God, I'm just 14, 15 years old. God, you know, I know how to use a slingshot. I've killed a bear. I've killed a lion. Now, God, I mean, I'm available. I'm here, God. And I see the picture, God. And God, if you can use me somehow in this battle, I'm available. Just take it. David goes to King Saul, turns down his armor. He takes his slingshot and he goes out to the brook. And he picks up five smooth stones. You know the story. Now, was David a man of faith? Yes or no? Yes. Now, if he was such a man of faith, why did he get five stones when one would kill him? That's one of those questions that want to make you go, hmm. 
Because we find in 2 Samuel chapter 21 that Goliath had four descendants. 2 Samuel chapter 21, there are four descendants. And David, after killing Goliath, later returns to battle with the Philistines and kills the four descendants. There are no mistakes in this book. There was a reason he picked up five stones. There are no mistakes. But see, the second principle, the second point of the kind of person that God uses is those who see obstacles as opportunities. Those who say, God, the battle is yours. Now, God, I've got a slingshot, and I can use it. And God, I'm here, and if you can use me, God, I'm available. It would be like you saying, God, I've got classes at Master's College. I've got a car. I've got a stereo. I've got a TV, maybe. You know, God, you know, I've, I've got, this is, this is what i got, God. I mean, I can play the guitar, like Chris, you know, or I can sing. Or, you know, God, this is all i got. Now, if you can use it, God, it's yours. And God says, that's the person I'm going to use. Because, see, God is looking for people. Who say, God? See, we get all caught up on the why and the how and all of these other questions, and God's only looking for a who. The battle is His. We had something interesting happen in our youth group at First Baptist, youth group of about 700 high school students. We had a young man named Chris. Chris went to a large high school in the upper middle class section of Atlanta. Chris was not good-looking. He was not popular. He didn't play sports. As a matter of fact, Chris was kind of a fringe kid. But at church, he got kind of involved. But at his school, he was just kind of nobody. But Chris had a heart for God. And during the first few weeks of his senior year at this school, six of the girls in his senior class got pregnant, had abortions. And it grieved Chris and it broke his heart. And he wanted to do something so badly. And so he began to pray. And several weeks later, God laid on his heart, Chris, go talk to the principal and take the videotape of the live abortion that your mom has. And so he went to, to the principal of the school and he told her what was going on and said, can we show this to my senior class? And she said, absolutely not. You're not bringing that morality stuff in here. You're not bringing all that God stuff in here. Get it out of here. There's no way it will ever be seen in the school. And so Chris went home and cried. No. Chris went home and planted bombs in the school. No. Chris went home and prayed. And he prayed for a week, and nothing happened. And he prayed for a month, and nothing happened. And now we're past Christmas, and he prayed for three more months, and nothing happened. In the first week of May, with three weeks left to go in the school year, he was sitting in sociology class, and his teacher came in one day and said, Now, seniors, we're going to take the last three weeks, and we're going to do special projects. I want you to divide into groups of two, and I want you to take a topic of current interest, and I want you to do a report on it and present a one-hour program to each class. And so Chris, when the bell rang, ran up to the teacher. He said, teacher, 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 Krista and I would like to work on this together. And Krista was his girlfriend. And she said, great, what have you chosen as your topic? And he said, would it be okay if we did one on abortion? And she said, sure, great topic. He said, now... 
would it be okay if we use some audiovisual tape during our presentation? Audiovisual, the class will love it. Bring it on in. And the next Monday, Chris and Krista brought the movie in. They showed it, and it so convicted the teacher and some of the people in that class that she canceled every one of her other seven classes, and 95% of his senior class got to see the video that couldn't be shown. Now, was it because Chris was good-looking? No. Was it because Chris was rich? No. Was it because Chris was smart? No. Was it because Chris was a jock? No. It was because Chris had a heart, and he had a burden. And he said, God, I got a class, and I got a videotape. And God, if you can use it, I'm available. And God says, that's the person I'll use. Because Chris trusted God to figure out the how. And Chris saw an obstacle as an opportunity for God to work. What are the obstacles that you confront? Do you see them as opportunities for God to work? And see, living in kind of a semi-sheltered environment of a Christian college, things will be much different when you go back home and you get exposed more to your other friends to society, when you get a job, you're going to find out that what you've got here is such a great atmosphere to be nurtured and encouraged and to grow. And the preparation that you make now is what's going to determine whether or not you're ready when God says it's time to step up to the line and make a difference. Well, There's one more point in just a few more minutes. Let's go back to about 600 years before Christ, to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 3. And let me give you a little background. See, we live in Babylon. Babylon is the strongest, richest, most powerful nation in the history of world at that time. And we've got a king named Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is a very powerful, autocratic kind of guy. And what he does is he sends our armies out. And they go and they destroy these other cities, these other tribes, and these other nations. And when we go in and we destroy them, we destroy the men, the women. We destroy a lot of things. But we save anything of value. Like the sheep, and the goats, and the horses. And we save the gold, and the silver, and the jewels. We also have another custom. We take the smartest, the brightest, the best-looking kids, young men that come from royal stock. And we bring them back to our society and we change everything about them. We change their haircut, their clothes, where they live, the food. We give them the best of everything and consequently we've got a great society because we've got the best of everybody we've conquered. And imagine that this one day we're all sitting on top of the wall. We're all, you know, students and they let the streets be for the little kids and the moms and dads. And so we're all kind of sitting up on the walls of Babylon in our white robes. And out in the distance we see the chariots coming in, the dust is coming up. And all of a sudden they open the big gates to the city and we start seeing the chariots come in. We see the army come in. We see the goats and the sheep and the cows and the horses come in. We see the gold and the silver and everything come in. And then we see the slaves, these young guys 
14, 15, 16 years old, chained together, coming through the gates. And there's some spots where people have died and they've just kind of, you know, been left wherever they were. And as we're sitting up on that wall, your buddy next to you pokes you in the side and says, Hey, you see those four guys back up on the seventh row from the left? Yeah. What do you want to bet that those four guys are going to change the religious climate of our kingdom for the generation of two kings? What? Those four guys? Look how scraggly they are. I mean, we won, they lost. No, what do you want to bet that those four guys are going to change the religious climate of our kingdom for the generation of two kings? But see, what we didn't know sitting on those, that wall was that those four guys were Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now let me tell you something. There were literally thousands of young men that walked in that day as slaves. And we don't know any of their names. We only know the names of four of them. Because there were four of them who had a passion to obey God more than anything else. They had a passion to obey God. Now let's look at Daniel chapter 3. And get the picture. Because of all of our conquests and all the people we've brought back into our society, we've got a culture of a lot of different backgrounds. And so Nebuchadnezzar decides, all right, everybody can worship their own God, but I'm going to erect this statue out there. It's going to be nine feet wide, 60 feet tall, and every day when you hear the sound of the lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, harp, all of the rock band of Babylon, okay, when they start playing, everybody bows and acknowledges that I am king. I am supreme. You can worship your God, but I am the greatest. And so the decree goes out all over Babylon. And the next day when the band starts playing, everybody in the, in the town bows and worships Nebuchadnezzar. Except for three guys. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the guards see them over on th- across the street and they say, Hey, guys, don't you know the rule? Oh yeah, we knew the rule. Now look, we're going to give you one more chance just in case you're slow learners, okay? We're going to give you one more chance. Now if you don't do this tomorrow, we're going to have to take you to the king. Fine. We're not going to do it. You can take us to the king. So, well, we'll wait and see what happens tomorrow. And so tomorrow, everything goes off again. The guards are watching. They don't bow down. And so they bring them into Nebuchadnezzar. Now, meantime, the guards have gone to Nebuchadnezzar the day before, and they've said, hey, there's these three turkeys out there that aren't doing what we've said to do. And Nebuchadnezzar gets furious. And he's already plotting. He's ready. And so look at Daniel chapter 3. Begin in verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready at the moment you hear the sound of all the instruments, to fall down and worship the image which I have made very well. But if you will not worship, you will be immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire, and what God is there that can deliver you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't even need to give you an answer regarding this. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, this is non-negotiable. I mean, this is ridiculous. We don't even have to answer you. I mean, there's kind of a little humor here. Here are these teenagers in front of the most powerful king that's lived in the world at that time, and they're saying, King, cram it. 
I mean, basically. If it be so, I mean, King, if you've got to throw us into the fiery furnace, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hands. Now, get the picture. King, look. I mean, you do with us what you have to do, but either way, we win, you lose. He says, what? Well, King, see, if you don't follow your rules, you look like a fool in front of everybody else, so you're going to have to throw us into the fiery furnace. If you throw us into the fiery furnace, we're out of your hands. We win. Now, King, if you throw us into the fiery furnace, our God, whom we serve, is going to deliver us out of your hands, and we're going to be set free. We win. You lose, King. And so Nebuchadnezzar throws him into the fiery furnace. Now, picture a couple of days later, and the guards are walking by, and they look into the fiery furnace, and he looks at me and says, Hey, Joe, how many guys did we put in there? Three. Now, Joe, I was at the king's party last night, and I had a few too many. You come over here and see what you see. Four. That's what I got. And so then they call over John. John, did you have a lot to drink at the party last night? No, I was sober. I was a designated driver, okay? And so he goes over and he counts. He says, there's four. Call for the king, so they go get the king. They say, Nebuchadnezzar, there's something funny going on down here. You better come right away. So Nebuchadnezzar comes down. He looks in. He says, how many guys we put in there? Three. Did I have too much wine last night? No, there's four. Cut off the smoke, cut off the fire, open the door, bring them out. I want to find out what's going on. And so out walks Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Don't even look burned, don't smell like smoke. They're just happy as they can be. They walk right out and stand in front of the king. I'm sure they had this little smile on their face. Hey, king. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's a pretty smart dude. So Nebuchadnezzar looks at him. You know what he does? He says, new rule, new rule, whatever the old rule is, forget it. Their God is God. I mean, don't, I mean, don't worship that thing anymore. Uh, their God's God. Send out a new decree. Now, was it because they were smart? No, but they were. Was it because that they were rich? No, but they used to be. Was it because they were good looking? No, but they were. It was because these young men drew a line and said, this is as far as we go. And it doesn't matter what it cost us. We're going to take a stand. Because, see, they realized that by not drawing a line, they had far more to lose in disobeying God. And so they took a stand. And let me ask you, in your life, in my life, we live in a society that desperately needs some people of character. We have, people, we have a desperate need of men and women of convictions. We've got a world that screams compromise and a God that says character. And I don't care what some man stands up in Richmond, Virginia and says in a debate about the presidential candidates that character is not important. When he stands before God, I think he'll have a different song to sing. Young men and young women, character is important. Because from character comes 
convictions. From convictions comes integrity. And if we want to be salt and light in a dark and tasteless world, it's time for those of us who believe God. Even if we don't know how to explain it like that little girl, we're willing to trust Him with everything. Knowing that whatever it is that He asks for, whatever it is that He challenges to do, wherever it is He says to draw a line, we have far more to lose by compromising and disobeying God than we have to lose in this lifetime. Because we will be rewarded by God. So let me ask you this as we close. What do you stand for? Do you have the truth just up here? Or is it down here? And is it being manifested in the way you walk? Does the truth affect your attitudes, your actions, and your affections? Does the truth that I know you've been taught affect your conduct, your conversation? Does it make a difference? Because we live in a world who desperately searches for answers. And we have the answers. But they will never know unless they see it. And we need some men and women, even college age, because every movement of God has started with young people. Do you have a burden enough for God to move on this campus and through California and across America and around the world? Or would you rather just God do it somewhere else? He's already got the how figured out. He's looking for a who. And the who that He's going to look for are those with a pure heart, those who see obstacles as opportunities, and those who have a passion to obey Him no matter what it costs them. Are we burdened enough to draw the lines, to take the stands, that no matter what the opposition, our God is faithful and He will deliver us out of whatever circumstance or situation we find ourselves in because He is God. He who stands for nothing will fall for anything. What do you stand for this morning? Thanks, Bill. Let's stand and have a word of prayer and be dismissed. Thank you very much. Ed, thanks for the music. And Bill, thanks for the challenge from God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, again, we we pause and, Lord, just um, pray that the truth of Your Word and the challenge that we received from Your servant, Bill, will will land upon us heavily. And... uh, the activities that we engage ourselves in and are pulled into this day, even immediately after chapel, will not uh, allow us to be forgetful or distracted from from the conviction that we felt and the truth that uh, touched us. But Lord, help us to go beyond being just hearers only, to being doers of the word. And that's our desire. We want to be people of integrity. We want to be people who are 
are characterized by consistency. God, as Bill said, we want to be people of character. Thank you for bringing him, and thank you for this chapel. In Christ's name, amen. You're dismissed.